if you drive one of the wedge Lagondas, traffic stops because it looks like it's come from another planet. The wedge Lagonda is something which is quite unique. It's an enjoyable way to run a business. You meet lots of very interesting people. And whether it's the little ubiquitous Morris Minor or Austin Mini or something, right the way through to pure exotica, most of these vehicles have a tail, they have a little story. Its value is five or six thousand pounds, and I've got cars worth five or six hundred thousand. But I wouldn't swap anything for the Morris. The Chubb Interviews with Jody Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882. Hello and welcome back to the latest episode of the Chubb Interviews. I'm Jodie Kidd. In this series, we talk to classic car lovers exploring the personal stories of the people who inhabit this wonderful world. Thank you so much for all your fantastic feedback about the series. If you hadn't had a chance to listen to all of the Chubb interviews, why not check out all our episodes? Now, today's guest is one of the world's foremost car collectors, Roger Dudding. His incredible collection of more than 400 cars, including 200 classics, was featured in Top Gear. An entrepreneur and business leader, he has made his fortune in the self-storage industry, where he's affectionately known as Mr. Lockup. Roger also owns Studio 434, which supplies many of his vehicles to the film and television industry. And I can't wait to speak to the man himself about his life and his amazing collection of cars. So time to say hello to our special guest, Roger Dudding. How are you, Roger? Very well, Jodie. Thank you very well indeed. Oh, fantastic. So I always kick off the podcast by asking my guest about how they first got into cars. Was it a person that inspired you or did you just fall in love with them when you spotted your first car? How did you get into them? I suppose it was when I saw my first car. My late father was a naval engineer, which I followed in his footsteps. And he had a very old uh, motor car during WW2 called a Clino, which was a car which an enthusiast could work on. And father adored that car. And so whenever he's home on leave, working on his toy, I would join him. And I think that's where probably my interest first gathered momentum. So you learnt very early on the mechanical side of cars as well? Yeah, that's right. When I was probably about 10, I would imagine, 10 or 11. Can you remember the first time that you set your eyes on a classic car and thought, wow. Was it this car or was it a different one? Uh, no, it was the uh, different one, which I still have in my collection. It was a Jensen FF, uh, which oh. was quite unusual. A great collector's car. I saw this car. It was about three weeks old. And the person who had uh, purchased it changed his mind, said he wanted to sell it. So he sold the vehicle to me. And I still have that as pride of place in my collection. What was it about that Jensen that just got you? Well, I, I think the sort of rather esoteric design of the Interceptor, I had already owned a number of earlier Jensen's, but the Interceptor with its large glass rear window, which was <laughs> yeah, open to the boot, yeah, huge. It had permanent four-wheel drive, and though that wasn't new, new in the accepted sense, but the uh, mechanism which Jensen were using was licensed from Dunlop, who had invented four-wheel drive and anti-lock systems for the uh, aircraft industry. 
And uh, that's where it made it so totally, totally original. Been my baby ever since. I had a fully restored probably about 10 years ago. I've had it, I think, probably from 1950 or somewhere around about then. Wow. Or 57. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. And there's something so incredible about that engine noise, isn't there? Oh, it's superb. That great V8, enormous exhaust pipes. You know, I, I've got a house in North London, but I've got another one in uh, Bayswater in a London W2. And you always have the lads with their Lamborghinis or Astons or what have you, who love to metaphorically parade along the Bayswater Road and listen to the resonance of their various exhaust notes, which probably annoys some people, but I think it's absolutely superb. Have you joined them with the Jensen and, and quieted them all down? Unfortunately, past that age bracket now, but um, <laughs> you do have some rather miserable people who complain about the exhaust note, and I think it's just fun, and they're enjoying themselves, and you know, crowds will get out. There's about five or six local young men who've got their Lamborghinis and Ferraris and Astons who use that as a regular raw-through route, particularly on a Saturday night. So, yeah, I think it's great fun. Absolutely. So where did you even start this incredible collection of cars that you've got? Probably about 19, late 1960s, and uh, then it started to develop quite a lot into the 1970s, and my late wife got rather sort of peeved with my filling the drive up. I mean, we had a large house, you know, big driveway, double garage, quad garage, but it's always full up with a new pet I'd bought. So that prompted me, oh, probably now about 25 years ago, to buy what was originally a tram shed, in uh, Potter's Bar, my main house is in northwest London in Mill Hill, and bought this ex-tram shed, converted it as a, a place to put my toys in. And that's really where it could gather momentum. And I started buying more and more wide variety of vehicles. And that's now extended even further, where we started to be approached by people in the film industry wanting a particular car for a given film they're shooting. And I've since expanded the operation from the one in, uh, first of all, the one in Potters Bar to another great big warehouse, two or three minutes drive away, where we store the balance of our collection, which is now over 450 classic motor vehicles, as well as offering the maximum security storage for clients who we saw a lot of cars for clients. So do you think that your love of cars and purchasing the cars that you needed to put into storage was the start of your business? Yes, that sort of led to it. The business aspect was secondary, uh, but it really fell into that by default because we started buying more and more. The people would ask us to look after their cars. Then they'd ask us, would we organise you know, to sell the vehicle for them, either by auction or by private treaty? You know, the vehicles we look after for wide variety of clients, many under non-disclosure you know, deals or agreements, is Exotica. And I happen to be an engineer for my sins. And we baby these vehicles. We really look after them, treat them you know, with more respect than we do our own. And that quite obviously inculcates confidence in our existing clientele which then leads to more clients. And everybody's happy bunnies, so their pride and joy is looked after. Absolutely. And how many garages do you think you've got now? Oh, what in my, my garage business? I think at the uh, last count, we'd gone to about 14,500. In fact, I bought some more this week. Yeah, it's one of these things that I looked at that as a potential business, what, maybe 30 years ago. Those people wish to be unkind. They can refer to it as the the ticky-tacky end of the property market, well, it is, I suppose, in essence, albeit a ticky-tacky lock-up garage, 
was my house in Bayswater. I've got two garages there and I'm always turning down offers from people who would like to buy one of them or both of them. And you know, a typical price is £200,000, but they're wow. for a garage. Yeah, for a garage. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable, but they're not for sale because that's why I need them for my own cars. So I, I, <laughs> I, I've got this rather large collection of lock-up garages all over the country, and I'd probably buy another site to add to our enormous collection, which would become a sizable business in itself. Fantastic. And just even a bigger excuse for you to get more cars. <laughs> well, that's absolutely true. Yeah, that, that's how the thing has grown. Someone that wants to use the word exponentially, I think it's probably about right. I mean, there's no rhyme or reason to this other than, you know, I happen to like motor vehicles. Our oldest vehicle is 1900. Uh, we go through the whole range right up to, you know, present day Jag or Ferrari or what have you or Rolls, but they are fun. If, if you don't like motor cars, so then obviously it's not for you. Yeah, don't, don't worry, they, your... they won't be listening. <laughs> they won't be listening uh, yeah, to people exactly, that don't like exactly. motor cars. It's something which I, I enjoy, and it's, and it's great fellowship with people you meet. Yes, absolutely, like-minded people. And can I ask, was this the, the beginning of the collection? Was it initially intentional, or was it because you just you spotted a car, you really liked it, you bought it, and you just never sold it because you didn't want to sell it? You were too attached. That, Jodie, is 100% correct. I just spotted something, I liked it, I thought it was sweet, nice to own, so that was it. And I saw another one like that and bought that. As my you know, financial resources improved progressively over the years, thank goodness, I was able to indulge my uh, whim, my hobby, quite extensively to the point where it's probably absurd. Uh, if I see a motor vehicle now, within reason I like it, I'm in a very privileged position, I can buy it. I'm sure a lot of them would have changed value over the years that you weren't tempted and because I'm sure some of the early cars probably quadrupled or even more so. Oh, yes, you're 100% correct. Uh, and the, the earlier purchases, they have quadrupled or even gone further than that. Uh, my philosophy has been to buy for enjoyment and they go to a lot of shows and exhibitions and it's enjoyment and for other people so it hasn't been a financial purpose to begin with but I have to admit in the last perhaps five ten years you know, the enormous value that's it's escalated into now means that it's got a pecuniary side to it as well. Yes, no, I totally get it. And amongst your collection, you've got quite a, a, well, a lot of these rare cars, which is Aston Martin Lagondas. How many have you got? I know that you've got a lot, but I don't know exactly <laughs> the amount. Uh, well, they're, they're, they're nicknamed the Wedge because they look like a doorstop. I have uh, 24. The Wedge is the one which either you love it or you hate it. It's a bit like a Marmite car. I've always enjoyed them. I, I like Aston Martin. The historical Lagondas are a joy to own. I have Lagondas from the early 1930s. And then with the late William Towns, who designed the Lagonda wedge, uh, he took a clean sheet of paper and designed this car, which was like no other. Where most cars, as you know, if you look at them, they tend to evolve from the previous model to have something which is totally, totally unique. It is the wedge Lagonda. It didn't tick any conventional boxes. So when I've seen one, I, you know, I've bought it, you know, which is absurd to have, you know, 24 cars. But we, we had the very last one made and uh, we have the whole series from when they first were launched back in the late 1970s. They are a joy. Uh, they are so, so... I always say to anybody who often turn their noses up at the idea of the Wedge Lagonda and absolutely no disrespect to any other brand, 
But if you drive one of the wedge Lagondas, for example, around Mayfair area, traffic stops because it looks like it's come from another planet, you know, and that's an area which proliferates with Ferraris or Jaguars or Lamborghinis, which are metaphorically commonplace. But the wedge Lagonda is something which is quite unique. Well, you don't get to see them because it sounds like you've got them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, done the bunker hunt, cornered the you've market. You've done it. You've done it. Very, very, very smart move. I mean, how many did they make in total? I think they made in total around about 600. The majority were exported to the Middle East. And I believe there's probably only about 250 or so still in existence. The collector buys it and it's tucked up away in a barn somewhere. And that's where it lives. No, I mean, honestly, you don't get to see them a lot. And I bet you, you know, they stop traffic if you drive them through London. It is quite amusing that people who have not seen one and you know, little boys of probably eight or, t or girls come to eight or ten, if it's parked up, it's old mummy or daddy, what is that type thing? And I suppose that was my reaction at that age all those years ago. What is it about the Lugana? Was it because it was so different to what Aston were designing at that time? Or did you drive it and then fall in love with it? Or, or it was just aesthetically pleasing? You're totally correct. The first, the first thing when I saw one, I just thought it was so out of this world. And I have the privilege of meeting uh, the late uh, William Towns, a designer. And Aston Martin quite bravely had apparently said to him, well, design us a new car. And Aston, which is often the case with that company, its uh, financial fortunes tend to fluctuate. Yes, and somewhat. It's somewhat, exactly. <laughs> and it's fairly widely agreed or suggested that if it hadn't been for the Wedge Lagonda at that time, late 70s, early 80s, that Aston would have gone to the wall. But it was the Lagonda that saved their, you know, their financial bacon. I think it's an amazing, amazing looking car. But can I ask you almost the most impossible question? What is the most special car to you in your whole collection? I know it's a horrible question because you'll love all of them. No, I, I can answer that without equivocation. The most valuable and special car to me is a 1954 split windscreen Morris Minor, which belonged to my late father. And that's my most treasured possession in motor cars. I didn't think you were going to say that. That's lovely. When father bought that Morris way back in, well, it was 52, I think it was 52, 53. What a lot of people uh, nowadays don't know, at that time, cars were on ration uh, in the UK. And basically, if you bought a new car, uh, when your ration came up, you had to agree to keep it for four years. You weren't allowed to sell it to stop profiteering because British cars were being manufactured for export to build up the capital reserves of the country, which of course was almost bankrupt after World War II. So father was very fortunate to have this Morris Minor, which was his treasured possession when he died several years ago now. Mother told me that she's going to give my sister uh, father's Morris. And I said, no way, I'll buy sister a car uh, you know, of equal value, but I want dad's Morris. And so that's in my collection and it's a, a unique baby to me a pure emotion its value is probably what five or six thousand pound i suppose and i've got cars worth five or six hundred thousand but i wouldn't swap anything for the morris i love that that's just a gorgeous gorgeous story pure emotion <laughs>
Well, that's what cars evoke. That's especially what classic cars and, you know, that's what they are. They're pure emotion. And that's why we're all here talking and making podcasts because they are emotional. You know, we love them. For a free non-committal insurance quote, go to chubb.com forward slash the interviews for more information. Right. So I'm now going to go on to your other side, which is you've got this studio 434, which is where you supply all your cars for films and TV. So that must be really fun getting to see all your cars on the big screen. Yeah, it's great fun and meet an awful lot of people, actresses and actors and what have you. We have a lot of films being shot there. Uh, We have three studios there now. That all originates from, again, supplying cars to film companies who want cars in this period or that period. And one thing off the led to another, they were looking for a smaller studio. They couldn't get one. So I, I bought this uh, quite large warehouse complex and we made uh, three of the buildings into fully soundproof studios. Almost weekly, we've got one or two production companies up there shooting films and occasionally using you know, our vehicles in those films if it's relevant. So that's another arm which is developed. Yeah, because it's kind of, it's such an art taking a picture in a, of a car in a studio. Yeah, I can totally understand. I'd love to come up and see them. Well, you're very welcome at any time. We're metaphorically open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But we're not open to the general public. It's by invitation because obviously security, uh, and I'm not talking about COVID situation, which you have at the present moment. Obviously, we conform to all rules and regulations where that's concerned but also from a security aspect. But no, if, if we have anybody who wants to come and view the collection purely and simply out of you know, general interest, well, we, we're only too happy to entertain them. But for security, it has to be done by prior appointment. But you know, I will say now that in our complex, we have probably four or 500 cars belonging to ultra high net worth individuals where we store them under strict confidentiality, no one can view those cars because they're not, they're not on view. But of our collection, of which we're told is the largest collection in Europe, true or false, I don't know. But uh, we have a lot of interest in those. And obviously, we'd welcome you to come along any time to see yourself and even buy you a ham sandwich, if you like. We're very generous. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> How can you resist pushing, that offer? Pushing <laughs> the boat out. I'll be I up next know. week. <laughs> right. You're very, very welcome. Any time, let us know. Oh, how lovely. That's, I would just absolutely love that. Um, I suppose a, a really big question is, when you've got that amount of cars, how do you keep them all in perfect working condition? Well, to be honest, then they're not, regrettably, they're not all in perfect working condition, but most of them are. We have uh, two in-house full-time mechanics who work on the vehicles on a rotor system. Uh, we have two in-house car cleaners, valeters maintaining them. Often events overtake us because we will have a company who wants to do a film shoot with XYZ car. And of course, it's that always inevitable. That car hasn't been serviced for whatever reason for some time. So <laughs> yeah, we, have to, we have to drop everything and get that vehicle up and running. But no, so we're fairly well placed and disciplined to provide vehicles you know, at the drop of a hat. And you know, we do quite a lot of you know, high-profile weddings and uh, things of that nature where people want something unusual. Uh, we, we, we ship cars abroad for such events, but you know, quite a lot in the UK. One of the funniest things I had, we had, uh, and I, I won't be too specific about this, but we had a, 
a charming young lady a couple of years ago came to visit us with her mother. She wanted to look at a variety of cars for her wedding day and a couple of cars for the other other people. So she's wandering around and she's looking at some of the cars we've got. And we have, obviously, there at all, you know, several type Jaguars and Ferraris, you know, very, very low slung sports cars. And her eyes are lighted on a beautiful, beautiful E-type. And she sort of turned to her mother and said, well, you know, what do you think about this? So I said, well, forgive me. I don't wish to appear rude. But if you're thinking this is uh, appropriate for a wedding car, your wedding car, in all honesty, it's not. Because if you get into that car with any size of wedding dress, you'll get out like a crumpled dishcloth. The mother rounded on me, how can I be so personal, da-da-da-da. So I said, look, realistically, you know, you need a very slimline person and the slimline clothing to get in that sort of car. I mean, so true. She's either going to come out crumpled or kind of covered with a bit of oil or kind of singed her toes a bit when the engine gets hot. <laughs> You must have had some amazing kind of stories of actually purchasing some of your cars. I mean, did you find any in unusual places? Uh, well, we, we get we, what with the uh, the lock up garage business, we have quite a few cars come to us almost by default, where people have you know abandoned their car and haven't paid us rent. So we go around to inspect that particular garage. We find in there in a rather sad looking motor car, unloved. And then we check back and find out it's really been abandoned. So get that sorted out. Um, and we've had you know, quite amusing you know, stories on that side. We had a lovely phone call a couple of years ago. Uh, my late father had, during World War II, a Kleino motor car. You know, CLYNO, many people don't know about them. They were built in Wolverhampton. And uh, anyway, father had this Kleino. And I suppose out of deference to father... I own a large number of Kleino cars, as well as Kleino motorcycles. There's so much history behind that brand. Anyway, um, one of my people took a phone call from a, a woman, middle-aged woman, who said she's trying to trace Kleino registration number, whatever it was, X, Y, Z. It was her dad's uh, 50th wedding anniversary, a uh, couple of weeks' time. He had this Kleino. She's trying to trace it. No success anywhere. Someone said we had a number of Kleinos. Did we know the whereabouts? And it so happened that the Kleino she was seeking, we owned. And it's right behind my man who took the telephone call. So he's able to say to this uh, you know, young lady, well, don't look any further, we've got it here. And it turned out they lived in Basingstoke and wanted a surprise to bring her mother and father up to see his cherished Kleino on their anniversary. And the upshot of all that was that he'd sold the Kleino you know, 60 odd years ago to raise the money to buy the engagement ring for the lady who became his wife and her mother. We still have that car, along with several other Kleinos in the collection. But lots of silly little stories like that, with people, you know, sold us cars, we've bought them, and people checked back, and we've got this car, and they'd, you know, belong to the family, and they could they come along and see it, and they can take it out for a drive. Because, again, there's so much emotion, you know, tied up with these people. And maybe the person's fallen on hard times, they had to sell the car, and it's ended up with us. Well, we're only too happy uh, if something like that crops up for the previous owner to come along and they can take take his, his ex-car for a spin around the block and so on and so forth. Because they, they develop, as you know, they develop personalities of their own. And that's that's way of life, I suppose. Yeah, I think that's such a lovely story. And, you know, uh, and to reunite 
you know, people with their kind of with their memories and things like that. It's just wonderful. And and also, if anyone's, you know, got a cherished memory of a car that was, you know, like that story you just told by by he had to sell the car to get the engagement ring. I wouldn't want it in anyone else's hands but yours because you know it's going to be looked after and cherished and you can go and see it whenever you want. I think it's wonderful. That's very, very sweet to you. Well, life is comparatively short, isn't it? So I think if you bring a, you know, a, a happiness, a ray of sunshine, make somebody grin, well, then why not indeed? That's probably part of our prime purpose being on this planet, isn't it? We might be in business to make a profit. We don't make a profit, we'll go bankrupt. But uh, so obviously we're there to make a profit. But on the other hand, it's an enjoyable way to run a business. You meet lots of very interesting people. Uh, and whether it's a little... You know, ubiquitous Morris Minor or Austin Mini or something, right the way through to pure exotica. Most of these vehicles have a tale, have a little story, and uh, it's quite nice to unearth it. Absolutely, the stories. I love it. And do you still get time to kind of enjoy your collection? Uh, well, under all normal circumstances, the answer is yes, but being a bit of an idiot, about a year ago, I, I fell over and uh, tripped on some steps and fractured uh, four vertebrae in my lower spine, which has been uncomfortable. And I'm hobbling around like a, a pregnant duck, if I dare use the expression, <laughs> <laughs> you know, a, a year later. So a lot of my beautiful cars, I, I, I couldn't even drive. Oh. But uh, they're, they're out and about. And, um, you know, I have a I, I have a the great good fortune. I'm one or two good colleagues and a driver and what have you. But... You know, some of the vehicles I now find with Anno Domini marching on, I can't even get in because uh, of age. Uh, but they're still lovely things to look at. I'm so sorry about that. That's a real nightmare and very painful. Um, but before that, which car would you often kind of go, right, I've got the choice of hundreds of cars here. Which one did you always return to that you wanted to drive the most? Yeah, I, I suppose of recent years, my favourite or one of my sort of two main favourites is my, now it's a teenager, my 17-year-old Range Rover, which is a regular form of transport for me. Now, I've got later models, but, but it's, it's a, this one is it's quite elderly now, and it's my one of my favourites. And in addition to that, I'm fortunate enough, uh, I've got a couple of them anyway, but I've got a Rolls uh, Race, as far as I'm concerned, have the doors open in the proper direction, and that's a lovely car, and it's fairly compact, and you can easily park it. So I live in London. The only trouble with the race, because the enormous doors on them, uh, if you put it into a t conventional parking slot, and if somebody comes and parks beside you, you can't get in your car when you come back. So <laughs> <No>. it's, <laughs> it, it, has its, it has its shortcomings, but it's a very comfortable car to drive, as, as, as well you know. Please don't tell me that's happened to you. Has it happened? Oh, yes. Yeah, you stand in the back of your car, you know, fuming. The, the person who's parked either side of you, they're totally within the, the white lines, but they don't realise that your door has got to open so wide to get in it. And I'm not, I'm not too confident. So um, anyway, that's, that's a bit of a nightmare with those things. It's a bit of fun. So I tend to, if I'm going, you know, driving around in town somewhere, uh, well, you're going to need a need to park your vehicle in a multi-storey car park or something. Then I'll use my trusty Range Rover, which I think is a very nice vehicle. Absolutely, and better better for your back. That's absolutely true. And I suppose because your collection is so varied, you know, what was it that drew you to the cars in your collection? Is there a link? I I suppose the only link really is if you like the design and the style. I, I have a. Uh, 
a beautiful um, wooden picket mini. Uh, I know you probably know, obviously, wooden picket who did body conversions on minis. Then I've got a couple of uh, six-wheel cars, which again are from William Town's design of the uh, of the Wedge Lagonda. It's something which is the basic appeal. I, I like design, as I think I mentioned earlier, I'm an engineer for my sins, but I, I like design and therefore it's something out of the ordinary. I cannot get too excited and with no disrespect to the motor cars concerned, but you know the jelly mold variety, which come out like a sausage machine on the production line, you know, they offer probably excellent value for money. They would get you from A to B without fear or favour. And that's absolutely super. And when you start to go down the exotic route a little bit, you get into a level of temperamental cars. You have to accept the fact they won't always start, but they've got a beautiful body design. And that's it. That's why it's such a varied, varied collection. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just, I can't wait to see it. I mean, I just, my in my eyes, my mind kind of boggles to think of all of this collection. I mean, it's just incredible. Well, as wow. I say, as, as, as and when you have time, you're very, very welcome. I'm just going to come for my ham sandwich. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I won't forget that. I promise you that ham sandwich. Oh, brilliant. Now, Roger, in this podcast series, we're running a special theme called One Piece at a Time, where we ask our guests to select one, this might be quite difficult for you, prized possession to bring to the podcast. It could be part of a car, could be a photograph, could be an artifact, but certainly a piece that has a really special meaning to you or a memory. So what would that piece be? Oh, again, without uh, doubt, would be my uh, late father's Morris Minor. Really? And that's, that's, that's the one that has you know, total emotion tied up in it for me. I was, uh, obviously I was born, well not obviously, but I was born before WW2, quite familiar with the pattern bombing on London. Father was a serving naval officer all his career, uh, survived three ships being torpedoed. Uh, and obviously hundreds of thousands of people died in that conflict. Father was lucky enough to survive. So it has a lot of quite poignant memories for me, you know, his car. So that is the, the vehicle I would love to bring to the podcast. Oh, I absolutely love that. And I, I'll have to get you to get someone to take a picture of it so that we can see it and then we can, um, we'll post it so all our listeners will be able to uh, to see it as well. Its number plate is WKL150. My father called it Wilkie, WKL150. Wilkie. Wilkie, yeah. Oh. Oh, it should be Wilco. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, it's just been such a pleasure to talk to you, Roger, and just share a little bit about your love and passion for cars and this incredible collection that, that you've got. Thank you so much for talking to us. Jodie, thank you very much. Delighted to talk with you. If you wish to follow this through to, with a visit, we're delighted to see you here. 100%. I am coming up to look at all your incredible cars and for our ham sandwich. And I won't forget the ham sandwich. Oh, you're a superstar. Roger, thank you so much again. And you take care of that back. Oh, thank you, Jodie. It's much kind. And I will hopefully see you very, very soon. Thank you, Roger. Lovely talking to you. Thank you, Jodie. Take care. Save up to 33% on Chubb Multicar Insurance. Go to chubb.com forward slash the interviews for more information. Gosh, what a lovely man. My head is exploding that he's got this amount of cars. I can't wait. I'm going to go visit as soon as we possibly can. What a wonderful, wonderful chat we've just had. And now that Roger has shared his special one piece at a time item, 
would love it if you, the listener, could share your own special piece. So please post your pics on Instagram or Facebook or send it on email. On Facebook or Instagram, just search for Chubb, that's C-H-U-B-B, collect a car. Or for email, classiccars at chubb.com or browse chubb.com forward slash the interviews. So thank you so much for joining me today for the latest episode of the Chubb interview series brought to you by Chubb, who share our passion for classic cars. There'll be another episode very soon. To receive every episode as it's released, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please review, spread the word, and don't forget to email us your stories about your most loved classics. I'm Jodie Kidd. Until next time, bye. The Chubb Interviews with Jodie Kidd. Brought to you by Chubb Insurance. Expert insurers of your most valued possessions. Established since 1882.